Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Scott Cooper's new western, Hostels. Set in 1892, the film stars Christian Bale as a U.S. cavalry officer who reluctantly agrees to escort a dying Cheyenne war chief and his family on a harrowing journey from an isolated outpost in New Mexico through dangerous Comanche territory back to their tribal lands in Montana. In addition to Hostels, Mr. Cooper's directorial credits include the feature films Black Mass, Out of the Furnace, and Crazy Heart. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Cooper spoke with director Peter Landisman about filming Hostels. During their conversation, Mr. Cooper discusses how he separates the director and writer within himself during production, his reverence for and directorial approach to the Western genre, and how selecting a setting can be as important as casting one of the leads of the film. Thank you. Um, remarkable film, Thank Scott. You. Beautiful. Thanks, Peter. Um, before we get into it specifically, um, writer-director like yourself, this is your fourth film mm. as both writer and director. The true creator and arbiter of the universe up on screen, but before we get to the movie, when you're both the writer and the director, you put yourself in the position of constantly interrogating yourself and your original intentions, right? You're at the dialogue, but then you have to coax performance, you have to get out of the way of performance at the Avid when you're editing, and you're constantly adjusting your own expectations. So talk to me for a minute about what that is to separate yourself as a director from the writer, um, from the budget and from the frame, and discovering something better, maybe discovering something worse than your original intent. Just this week I was watching Barton Fink, and I said to myself, and I have a brother, I was like, God, I wish he were also a director. Because it would make things so much easier when you have someone to, um, and he's not, uh, has nothing to do with the film business. But it's when you, when you both write and direct, I mean, generally I look to, uh, like with Crazy Heart, with Jeff Bridges, it was my first film that I'd written or directed, or certainly uh, with Out of the Furnace, or with this one, to Christian. Because when you, as many people in here know, when you both write and direct, it's, it's some, you, you don't really have a very, um, you know, you don't have a sounding board. You don't have someone there that you can really rely on to help you understand the screenplay's deficiencies um, or in, in your approach to the narrative. I mean, certainly you have your cinematographer and you have all, so many people who are working alongside you to make a film that we know um, it takes a village or your lead actor, Christian Bale, is you know, my closest friend and my closest collaborator. But being a writer and, and, and a director, it's almost like you're using both the left and the right side of your brain and they, and they sometimes they don't want to work in communion. And, and I find it, I find it really difficult. And then once you get into cutting it and you're looking at it as both a writer and as a director, and then they really aren't in, you know, in any type of, um, um harmony. And it, it, it's, it's tough. That's why when you look at the Coen brothers work and, and, and I always wonder, wow, how great would it be to have someone that you could, you could really, really dissect every moment of the screenplay, every moment of every setup, 
um, when you're in the cutting room, because as you know, when you because you write and direct all of your own films as well, you're, you 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 know maybe your wife, your girlfriend. I mean, certainly your actors, and I mean, I find it in, incredibly difficult to to keep that um, you know that kind of north star to be very very true. And it and it and it differs if you're writing an original screenplay like I've done, or you're adapting something. Um, maybe that's why Kubrick would only work on uh, or adapt films from previous works because he could sit down and he could read, as he said, he would read a novel. Uh, and if he could do it in two or three hours, he understood what the narrative was. And if you're writing an original screenplay, it, it, it sometimes you, you, you know, to understand if it's really a story worth telling. Uh, my second film, Out of the Furnace, was a very, very personal film. But then you make that film and you think, God, does anybody really want to see this and live in this world? So it's, it's tough. It's always a struggle, I think, trying to find that balance between being both a writer and director, and it's one that, even as I'm watching this film from the back of this theater or watching it last night, you're always saying, am I articulating, am I conveying the emotions that I wanted to convey? Am I um, ever being heavy-handed in these moments? And, you know, really, you just have yourself to, ba to bounce it off of. In this film specifically, what performances pulled you away from your original intent? What actors, where did you bend, where did you change? Well, interestingly, starting with Crazy Heart, my first film, I tend to, and this can be very dangerous, I tend to write with actors in mind. I wrote Crazy Heart for Jeff Bridges, and I'd never met Jeff. And I wasn't going to say no until Jeff said no, and it took about a year, really. I mean, I sent the screenplay off to Jeff, and, and I didn't hear anything for a year. And, um, and then eventually I got this call that said, hey, Jeff read your screenplay, and he really likes it. So then I wrote Out of the Furnace for Christian Bale, and then I wrote this for him. So, so generally, I also wrote it for Wes Studi, who plays Yellowhawk, and I wrote it for Corianka Kilcher. The three of them were in The New World, Terrence Malick's film together. Um, I wrote it for Stephen Lang and Bill Camp, Rory Cochran, Jesse Plemons, all the actors. I wrote with them in mind, much like I did in Black Mass and Out of the Furnace, and that helps. Um, it helps because I understand, and, and, and as a writer, um, so often I would find myself overwriting my screenplays and then when I'm shooting them I would pull back on the dialogue because I would overwrite it for the financier, for the producers, for the actors to understand and then realize that as I'm shooting it you have Christian Bale who can say so much more with a look or a glance non-verbally than I ever can as a writer. And of course, everybody likes to hear your dialogue and you know your mise en scène and your um, you know your writing behavior, all those sort of things. As as a former actor, that I tend to do in my screenplays, and when you write for actors that are as good as these are, you you, you know you tend to kind of get out of the way. And they all have. I find that actors have very the smart ones like Christian, who's as you know is is really an astute. Uh, he's been doing it far longer than I have. Of, uh, un, you know, understanding human behavior and and his character's arc. It helps to have guys like that really help you understand where your deficiencies are as a writer or how you think you can make the screenplay stronger or characterization stronger. Talking about that, actually, you know, in this film, um, the moments that struck me, the writing is brilliant and beautiful, but the moments I woke up thinking the next morning about were three shots almost locked off on Christian when he has these slow revelations going from melancholy to the understanding of his own barbarity to mm. regression to regret. And it's interesting to me to watch you as a director grab those moments 
and also lean on them and be patient with them in the avid. And you and I talk about pace with this film. Talk to us a little bit about how the translation went from page to camera to pace in the avid and the choices you made about the editing and the speed of the film. Yeah, when I write, I try to write as as vividly as I possibly can. My father, who was uh, taught English for years, has nothing to do with film. I would send him my screenplays, and if he could really understand what I was trying to say on a visual level, even even so as a, as a character and, and through dialogue and expression and conveying certain emotions or um, psychological machinations of a character, if my father, who has nothing to do with film, I understood from a barely, when I wrote Crazy Art, if he could see it and understand what I was trying to say on a visual level, then I felt like anybody could because he has nothing to do with the film business. So as I'm writing that, and it's, it's very clear the intent of the story, and I never want anyone as a, as a filmmaker, I never want anyone to feel my camera at all um, because it's easy to be clever with a camera. Um, and I want people to be inside the camera and living in that certain world. And you have to have craftsmen and women who, who believe in that as well. My cinematographer who shot my last three films, my costume designers, my production designers, so that we're all kind of in unison and in the same key. So when, when you have that going for you, you're able to then take a scene that's on the page, and then as you're shooting it, it's, it's really set up, in, hopefully in a very clear fashion, so that everybody understands that, including between the actor and the uh, my cinematographer. And then once we get into editorial, as everybody in the room here knows, a, a movie will tell you how it should be cut by the way you've shot it, uh, as opposed to just shooting a bunch of footage on Steadicam and then hoping that somebody can cut it together. Um, if you're if if you really care about the, the art of storytelling and using the camera to tell the story. And I try to tell my stories in a way that if someone in Bulgaria or someone in Japan or someone in Italy should be able to not even speak English and understand what's happening. Because I never went to film school, but I would watch a lot of foreign language films or watch a lot of films from the masters with the sound off. And I could always understand what was happening in the narrative just by the, uh, the, the way that the director was telling the story with the camera, lens size, with um, the way they would move the camera, more importantly, when they wouldn't. So when you can, like Bergman, like if you would lock off a shot and you have Christian Bale, who is, you know, uh, ranks among one of the great actors in the world, there's no need for me to help tell the story with the camera. So that also starts with the screenplay, all the way through discussing that with Christian, with my cinematographer. And then once we're in the cutting room, even though you have Tom Cross, who cut the film and won an Oscar for Whiplash and La La Land, then you, you understand that... Uh, a lot of that work is done for you. It's interesting, the tug of war between the genre you chose, Oof. the great iconic genre of the American Western. But we, we, you and I discussed we're in an age of television where the cutting pattern is fast, the shots are clean, and it's back and forth. Talk to us about the decisions you made about dealing with it, recon re reconciling yourself to where we are today but also the iconic you know, genre you chose and the obligations, the camera obligations, the lighting obligations, all that. Yeah, well, my last two films, Black Mass was the gangster genre, and this is the Western. And those are two genres in which the best films ever made reside. And uh, so even before you've shot a frame of footage, 
you know, you have a target on your back and likely on your torso that says, shoot me because I'm going to be compared to the best films ever made. So then you try to make something that you think is very personal, that pays homage to those great films. And there are two or three um, shots in here that specifically I'm uh, tipping the hat to the searchers. Um, Ethan in the doorframe, Christian Bale in the doorframe, um, those sort of things. But but I, I try not to think in terms of genre because if you do, I think you get hamstrung. I just try to tell human stories that happen to, to take place in the mean streets of Boston, or in this case, the um, you know the majesty of of the American West. And and I've said this before, but Robert Duvall, who's a mentor of mine and close friend, has said that. The English have Shakespeare, the French have Moliere, and we as Americans have the Western. And uh, and I think you know any uh, any self-respecting director at some point will try to make one because it's such an American art form like jazz is. Um, but with that comes a very difficult um, you know road to hoe because automatically you get compared to Anthony Mann or Eastwood or or or, or John Ford or. Howard Hawks, but in terms of telling the story with the camera in this genre, when you're shooting The Majesty of the American West and also in terms of pacing, I really believe that we have a different relationship to film now, partially because of television and the um, propensity to use a lot of close-ups and very quick cutting patterns, but also because we're so inundated on a minute-by-minute basis of uh, an ever-changing news cycle, the fact that we're always scrolling our phones, the fact that it, it, a lot of people, and of course not the directors in this room, but so many people want to get in and out of the cinema as quickly as possible, almost like they're getting an enema. You know, it's, it's like, how quickly can I get in and how quickly can I get out? And, and, and I really was greatly influenced by the, uh, you know, by the work of the 1970s, which were, which was much more patient. And this is a patiently drawn story in which people are walking from New Mexico to Montana. But beyond that, it's a, uh, it's an emotional journey. It's a psychological journey. And I, when you have actors this good, you don't want to, um, cut out of these moments because they're 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 I mean they're brilliant and and it helps tell a story and and if and why not sit in a movie that's 2 hours and 7 minutes long that's patiently drawn why the world slowly crumbles around you outside because <clears throat> that's what's happening you know ironically the most contemporary thing about the film is its lack of fetishization of the past it's a period movie but the costume design, you know, I talked about this. Talk about process, production, production design uh, as it relates to, you know, the lack of fetishization of period film. Well, generally yeah. when you see a period film, um, and th this is all just my taste, you really feel its period nature. It's overly costumed, uh, overly production designed, overly car designed. Everything is screaming a certain era. And I always want you to fill that era. I want to transport you to that era, but I also want all of those details to recede to the background so that narrative, emotion, and characterization can come to the foreground. Um, and when you have the great Donald Graham Burt, who built the fort by hand, um, both of them, or, or choosing locations very carefully from New Mexico to Montana that help tell the psychology of the, of the journey as well as the psychological nature of the characters. And then you're talking about Ginny Egan, who's one of our top 
costume designers, they all have to understand that it isn't about look, look at my work, but how do we tell a story all in the same key so that it, it isn't not, not one thing's out of balance in saying look at the period nature of this film. And, and you really have to have craftspeople who, will, who understand that, that there's so much more in restraint. It's a little bit like performance. Using Duvall again, he would always say to me, you know, he's one of the great actors that's ever existed. Uh, Marlon Brando said he, he was the greatest actor, screen actor. He says that to win awards in this business, quotations, the most acting equals the best acting. And you can say that about camera, you can say that about lighting, you can say that about costumes. And I prefer just to, um, you know, play the opposite, which is all about restraint and hoping that that the culmination of everything together will help transport you. Because there are three things that I want to do as a, as a film director. One is transport the audience. Two is move the audience. And three is to have the film stay with you well after you've left the cinema. Because there's nothing worse than seeing a film and then turning to your significant other and saying, you know, where are we having dinner? As opposed to, wow, you know, that particular moment or, I mean, that's why I wanted to become a film director. There are certain moments in films that that I still think about uh, on my morning runs that I, you know, seen years before that. So it's, that's always the goal for me. One more question, then we'll kick it out to the audience for a second. Talk to us about casting, faces, mm. politics, and soul. You know, when I cast, you have to throw outside influence away politics away and yet it's also yeah. surrounding especially today we're just inundated inside and outward we're, we're suffocated by politics talk to us about that because this is a very third rail kind of potentially well in terms of uh just uh, it, part of this question and the question before about making it feel somewhat modern and not fetishizing i mean look it's everybody in this room knows that we're living in very dark and, and polarizing times and that the racial and cultural divide is is wide and getting wider by the day, or by the moment, quite frankly. Um, and I wanted the film not to shy away from the kind of dark and unforgivable American past of attempted genocide toward indigenous people, but I also wanted to speak to this need for for reconciliation and this need kind of for healing and understanding the ways of others. Otherwise, we're going to continue down this very dark path of bipartisanship and and red states and blue states and people who live on the coasts and then people who live in the heartland who are living in two different worlds and are never going to come together. And to do that, then if, if you can touch on that in a very, very subtle way, I hope not in any heavy-handed way, but in a very subtle way, and then in terms of casting my... Um, Actors again. I, I have like a little rep company of actors, and I don't know much about. It's not true about Christian, but some of the other casts. I don't know much about their politics. I don't know much about um, um, because you know we. You kind of get a sense of, of where people stand, but in terms of you know there are eight or ten actors that I, I have tended to use in all of my films, and um, you know generally I, I feel like in terms of just casting in general. I don't know that people, it's tough to get people off of their sofa to go see anything that isn't a superhero movie or a horror movie, quite frankly. And a movie like this feels like, Jesus, how are you going to get somebody to you know, get off their sofa who isn't in a guild to come see a movie that, you know, that asks a lot from the audience and that is patiently drawn and, and deals with, with some of our darker uh, truths. Um, and I don't quite know... 
if movie stars help do that. I mean, you know, Leo does, if, if you're making the revenues, people will come out and see that for sure. Um, so generally I try to cast, and I've been lucky, to cast people that I think the best for the parts. Well, I love that this movie, that you didn't blink. You know, you didn't blink at the violence. You didn't blink at... By the way, Scott cast his own daughters at the beginning of the movie and knocked them off within three minutes. Yes. You know? <laughs> Summer camp with the Coopers. <laughs> um, you, didn't, you didn't blink at who died. I mean, I got to say, even at the end of the film, you, know, you took out people I loved. Yeah, and, uh, and look, and that's the West. The randomness of violence and the randomness of death. And, and people who were in search of the manifest destiny in search of a better life, leaving racial or, or religious persecution, um, and the hardships in, in which these people lived, uh, you know, there's, we just have no idea. And all the research that I led, led me to believe that you, you can be building your cabin in an idyllic uh, valley in New Mexico one day, and the next day uh, a group of marauding Comanches will come upon your cabin and want your horses, and the next thing you know, your entire family has been exterminated. And I, I wanted to start the film that way, of course, with my with my daughters, to show that also the the, the kind of the indomitable spirit of Rosamund Pike's character to to overcome that kind of great loss, um, and to show that that we can overcome the great hardships and, and loss and grief that we all suffer through on a daily basis. People who live in Syria, on the south side of Chicago, or in Los Angeles, I mean, we all deal with um, grief and loss and, and hardship, but, but in the American West, even in such an incredibly gorgeous locale, uh, you know, one can meet their maker when they least expect it. Let's take questions from the audience. Anybody have anything? Over here, yes. Yes, sir. Well, literally, of the four films I've directed, this is by far the most difficult, because you're dealing with elevation, at times we were 12 and 13,000 feet above the sea level, which is very difficult for the crew, difficult for horses. Um, then we shot during monsoon season in New Mexico and Colorado, so it would rain every day torrentially, lots of lightning. And then, of course, uh, rattlesnakes were uh, present every day, and we had a, a snake wrangler. Then you have to actually shoot. So then you're dealing with a lot of horses, and you're dealing with uh, demanding actors, and uh, you're dealing with trying to, to you know, uh, convey emotion or convey a, um, a certain character moment or arc at all times. So, so it was by far the most difficult film that I have cast. And in terms of location, this is the first film that I've shot in sequence. Um, we only visit one location twice, and that's the Quaid cabin. Once when the family is beset upon, and then secondly, when Bale and his men come back and find Rosamund Pike and her daughters. So shooting in sequence, I wish I could do that on every film because it helps with performance, it helps me tell the story, it certainly helps editorially, things that I feel like I'm missing, and I'm continually writing as I'm shooting, so when you shoot in sequence, that really helps. But also, the landscape in all of my films, the environment, really affects character. All, so much so that it's almost as important as casting a lead actor whether it be the desert southwest in Crazy Heart or the still country of out of the furnace, Appalachia, or the mean streets of Boston, or certainly all the way from New Mexico up into Montana with this, this picture, um, because it helps tell the psychological journey of, of an emotional journey of each of the characters, and every location was, was um, very well scouted and, and, and very well uh, chosen by 
um, certainly my cinematographer, myself, and Donald Graham Burt, who's the production designer, is one of the greats. Actually, I think of that. If you shoot in sequence, you can take <coughs> weather as it comes, can't you? Yeah, indeed you can. And, and we did, oftentimes. And, and if, for anybody who's worked in lightning, knows that any lightning that's within six miles of, and they're lightning meters, then you have to shut down. But when you have the intrepid Christian Bale and a, and a director who uh, doesn't know any better, and, and my cinematographer from Japan, we're like, oh, why not? So the three of us would go out and shoot, even in Lightning, and, and John Lesher, our producer, was... Um, I'm sure the Bond company loved that. They did not yeah. love that, no. <laughs> Over here, yes. Yes, sir. Well, um, I'll start with the last one first. Only Christian, myself, and my cinematographer knew that I was going to shoot the ending two ways. That he got on the train as scripted, but also that he doesn't. Um, because I wanted to live with the film for six, eight months in the cutting room and then realize if it was the right thing for his character because here's a man who's suffering also from melancholia, post-traumatic stress, and you know we've seen a young Native American boy who was losing all of his ties to his culture and his heritage, and then a mother who's lost three children and her husband. You know, that's a fun group, you know, to, <laughs> to put together onto a train, but but I feel like it was it was the right uh, decision. Um, but that did take some time to build the sets and get the period trains and all of the, uh, you know, period accoutrement. And then, and then you have Christian who, who has been in his cavalry uniform the entire time. And then you, for the first time you see him in a suit and he's very uncomfortable and almost rigid and, and doesn't quite know how to act because he's out of his comfort zone. And here he is with the onset of modernity and the industrial revolution and this is a man who's been living out on the plains fighting native americans his entire life since he was a boy and it's all he's known to do is essentially kill on behalf of the united states government and and essentially everybody in the film is a hostile we open the film with hostile comanches uh christian bell is clearly uh, a hostile the united states government is um the fur hunters uh, who abduct the women um when I, I wrote that scene with Christian in the desert after he's been given this mission, again, this is a man who lives by code and by duty and has fought for the United States government for years, believed Andrew Jackson when he said, um, kill the native but save the man. And yet here he is uh, a part of this gambit for Harper's Weekly and the government to escort a man that's taken so much from him and offered house arrest or court-martial for a man who's given everything. And he's just gotten to a point where how much more of this can he take? So he's out there. And then later he sees a mother who's lost so much go through the same thing. Um, and it, it really helps us to understand that, that grief and, and anger and loss and heartbreak comes in so many different ways. And that it felt like a good way for those two characters to, even though they don't see that, he sees her going through it and she never saw him because he does this in, in a moment of privacy that we as an audience know that these are two very broken people, but that through time and through healing and understanding can they hopefully come together. One yes, last sir. question over here. Max Richter. Yeah, Max Richter, who is the composer, he doesn't like to do a lot of films. He did an, an animated film, um, was Israeli, uh, Waltz from Bashir, which I thought was quite masterful. And he's done, he did the leftovers for TV because he's quite friendly with the author. Um, but he, he doesn't like to do a lot of, you, you heard some of his score in the film Arrival, just a couple of pieces. 
And I'd always wanted to work with him because I listened to his, his, just his compositions all the time. And he's, he's a real genius. And a lot of composers that I really admire, they all look to Max as being one of the great composers. So I thought, well, why not try this? Because I'm cutting to his music. And I have a lot of it that I had my music editor cut together and just put into the film. And his agent said, well, you know, I can't imagine that he, he's going to want to do a Western. I said, well, um, and, and his agent was trying to pitch me a lot of different very well-known composers. And I said, well, let's just at least run it for him. And ran it for him, and I got a call that was, from, he lives in London. And he said, uh, this is Max Richter, and I think what you have, have directed is, is a masterpiece, and I want to compose the music. But did you, was your temp score Max Richter? <clears throat> it was. <laughs> so <laughs> Max is saying, made it. Yeah. yes, indeed. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who actually uh, copy Max's work. Um, and then secondly, I received a call from a creative artist who represents me and said, you know, Scott, we got a call from a lady, uh, a widow, whose husband died in the 1990s, and she sold her house, and she's moving, and she found a screenplay that's part screenplay, that's part novel, that's part book, that her husband's been compiling over the years, and, and she thought you were the right person to rewrite it, direct it, make it into whatever it is that you think you ultimately could. And I said, well, what is it? She said, well, it's a Western. And I'll tell you this, she really liked Crazy Heart, but she was really, really moved by Out of the Furnace, which is my second film, which if you have two children at the time, and one is the one that everybody kind of likes and is cute and stands out in front, well, Out of the Furnace is the one that's hiding behind me that people have to seek out because it's, it's quite a tough film and one I'm very proud of. So that actually made me interested that here's an, an elderly lady who really gravitated towards a very dark film. And I read it, and the kernel that I most liked was um, just this notion of, of a man who's asked to escort a group of hostiles, Native Americans from New Mexico, or I'm not sure where it was that he had it set. But I had spent a lot of time in New Mexico and also in Montana, so I felt like that was a long journey. And, um, and she said that, that that was the credit that she wanted, was a manuscript because no one had seen it. And the WGA said that's what it should be. I wanted to give him credit, and they said no, because he's dead. Uh, there you have it. And then I wanted to really tell, I, I really wanted to make it feel like, um, I wanted to personalize it, I wanted to make it feel like it was speaking to the times in which we lived, which the manuscript was not doing, just in terms of racially and culturally, I mean, you know, and, 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 and a mother, and, and it was, it, it felt, you know, somewhat familiar, and I wanted it not to. But I really wanted to discuss race in a, in, a, in a way in which you have African-American buffalo soldiers, but you also have Native Americans. And why is it that Captain Blocker thinks so kindly towards um, an African-American buffalo soldier and also his father, we hear, uh, yet he makes this African-American chain a Native American? And very likely the African-Americans' um, uh, father, forefathers, came over in chains and and just the complexity of that and race and where we are today with race. And, um, and you know, it's interesting because if you look at all the research I did in 1892, and it, and it reminds us of history and how it repeats itself, and I'm in the process now of writing my next film about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the rise of a demagogue in um, George Wallace who gave so many people the... Uh, uh, you know, the permission uh, to enact their bigotry and hate and all of his stump speeches and how he's was such a divisive figure. And I think, God, where do I hear that every day? 
So history continues to repeat itself in human nature. Anybody else? I think uh, we good. One more? One minute. One more. I see the one minute sign. Does anybody else have anything? Hit a Turn back, yes. Yes. After I wrote the first draft, I was, uh, and I remain deeply indebted to many Native Americans. Chris Eyre, who is a um, film director who directed Smoke Signals. He is Cheyenne and Arapaho. I also spoke with um, and had Comanche advisors who were related to the um, uh, illustrious Quanta Parker. And I also had the chief of the Northern Cheyenne of Montana, who helped us with all of the language and uh, the customs and the mores, and they were on set every day and and all the way through cutting and and even through the release of the film. And, and generally when you make a film about um, Native Americans and you're dealing with race and, and some of the subject matter that I am, you're, you know, you're opening yourself up to criticism. And certainly if you don't, uh, if you choose to tell the story through the point of view of Captain Blocker as opposed to through Native Americans and I understood that going into it and fortunately I've screened the film enough for Native American groups and Native American film festivals that many of them I'm very heartened to say have seen themselves portrayed on screen in, in ways that certainly make uh, everybody involved with the film feel very good about it and, and hopefully that will continue to happen but I could never have made the film if not without all of the advisors and consultants, the numerous that I had every day on the film on set. Scott, thanks so much. Hostels, everybody. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Peter Landisman, check out episode 10, which features Mr. Landisman discussing his film Concussion with director Boaz Yakin. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.